Overthinking It Podcast, episode 33. Okay, welcome everyone to the Overthinking It Podcast. We are the podcast and website that subjects, subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Um, without much further ado, let's get straight into it. Let's start the Overthinking It. The question we have for the panel today is the Joaquin Phoenix ridiculously sloppy interview on Dave Letterman. Was he faking it or is he just playing a massive joke on us? And to start in alphabetical order, we'll start with from Boston, Massachusetts, Mr. Peter Fenzel. What do you think? Copy that. Copy that. I've been watching a lot of 24, so I answer every question with <laughs> copy that. Uh, if you mean was he faking that he was on heroin, then no, I think he was definitely on heroin. If you mean he was faking that he wanted to look like a 19th century German philosopher, that I would assume is artifice. But the, the heroin part, I think, is almost certainly true. And I'll tell you why. why it's because when he says something and the audience laughs, he looks around like somewhat disconcertedly and seems not to care very much whether or not the audience is laughing at him. And any actor who is doing this for shits and giggles is going to give at least a little gleam in the eye that they're enjoying the attention that they're getting unless he's just that good copy that okay <laughs> so fenzel thinks he's actually on heroin moving on next no no i'm on 24 joaquin phoenix is on heroin <laughs> <laughs> copy that, copy that. <laughs> 10 out next in alphabetical order skyping in from brooklyn new york we have mr jordan stokes faking it or not jordan I'm pretty sure that that was not a not an act. I saw a similarly awkward interview with uh, with Vigo Mortensen, where he actually pulled little plastic lizards out of his coat pocket and placed them on the interviewer's nose. I think this was on like John Stewart, placed them in the in the coffee uh, all over the place, and he you 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 saw the twinkle in his eye. You know, he had you wondering there for a while. You could tell that he was that he was enjoying it. And every now and then he'd turn and give a broad grin to the crowd. Um, there was no such glimmer with Joaquin Phoenix, although he did have sunglasses. Yeah, there, there, there is that. I don't know, man. That was, that was a hard interview to watch, honestly. It's more sad than funny to me. So it sounds like I'm taking the minority opinion that he is faking it and playing a big joke on us this you're always the, the minority on your on our oh, podcast you're always yeah. the minority to us That's so true <laughs> <laughs> no, but this combined uh, with the with the with it the, usually uh, takes like two whole minutes before the podcast goes into that particular uncomfortable direction <laughs> <laughs> we're going ethnic it's like the rat pack in vegas hey, you, know, you know i, I say this I, i've been thinking about this a lot and i would say that you know when it comes to subjecting the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably does deserve Deconstructing it in terms of, of race and ethnicity, I think, is something that the popular culture does deserve because there's so much coded underneath the radar references and insinuations in pop culture that and, and also combined with the kind of, you know, so many subconscious levels of racism that we don't you know, think about consciously that bringing these things out in the open, I think, is a service that we do to society, really. We're heroes. We're all heroes, each and every one of us. Hey, uh, Jordan, did you ever see the Viggo Mortensen on Charlie Rose interview? No. Yeah, <laughs> that was he, awesome. <laughs> he, he wore a, uh, a white T-shirt. He drew on it in permanent marker like to stop Iraq. I mean, Viggo Mortensen, I don't think he's drug-addled as much as he's like a legitimate eccentric. Like He's a painter and a sculptor as well as an actor, and he just seems to take a lot of joy in like living outside the box. Oh yeah, yeah, and that was that was the impression. I don't mean to say that his uh, performance in this interview I saw was 
was fake, but that it was um, under his conscious control. Yes. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. I'm totally with you there. I know what you're talking yeah, and, about. And Joaquin Phoenix did not seem that way to me. No, no. They both have beards, though. That's true. And, hey, you know, I, I am hoping that, that, uh, that Mark is right, that this is just a pose. That would be great news. You know, and I would I would gladly go down and say, oh, he totally played me. You know, that would, that would be wonderful. Well, so what about his his nascent hip hop career, though, that he keeps talking about? What? And he he went on stage and uh, somewhere I just I'm my memory banks are a little foggy on this, but it was on the Coliseum. He was going to fight Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> if only that were true. But he cheated. It was no good. It's no good. He actually. No, it was at Folsom Prison. I'm sorry, I screwed <laughs> up. It was at Folsom Prison that he was on stage because he was going to try to woo Renee Zellweger, but she was a ghost. Oh, that was another movie. <laughs> no, he actually took the stage and did a. And that was that was crappy. Renee Zellweger. That was Reese Witherspoon who was a ghost. Renee Zellweger was just British and fat. <laughs> then she was from the Midwest, and she was then she was and then she was an orc, which is when Viggo Mortensen was hunting her, and then it all comes full circle. I have seen that movie. It was a damn good one. Yeah, which one? Bridget Jones's Lord of the Rings part <laughs> Chicago style? Like, what? <laughs> uh, you know what? I think there's a fanfic out there that pretty much covers all that territory. Not yeah, to find it. Well, let, I think, I think let, Matt wrote it. <laughs> let me ask you guys a question. Let me ask you guys a question right now. At this very podcast, right now, are you faking it or is this for reals? I'm going to start. I'm going to start with our uh, minority person, who's Mark, because he feels all self-conscious about it. Mark, are you pretending to be saying the things that you're saying, or are you actually saying them? You know, Fenzel, you're, I, I don't know. If you're, you may be asking this question in jest, slightly in jest, at least. But there's definitely a performance element that of goes course. into what we're what we're doing here. This isn't, mm-hmm. believe it or not, overthinking it, listeners. This isn't how we communicate and talk to each other in the real life. We don our podcasting roving wizard hats and become different people. <laughs> and Can I say that, for you. that is the greatest work of literature that the internet has yet produced, the Blood Ninja Saga. And it is a damn shame that the Blood Ninja Saga is not studied in classrooms because that is the kind of thing you cannot write that before IMs exist. Like it, it was, it, I have yet to see anything that is necessarily emergent from the internet that is as interesting and compelling a read as a study of meta-formal uh, communication as the Blood Ninja Saga. Um, and rhinoceros is very territorial, and it will snort and it will sniff the ground. I think we should I wrote- pitch that. I think we should pitch that to our alma mater as a uh, as a guest seminar that we should. Teach. I think I think we should write a script and we should make a movie about it. Or that. I think we should we should make the Blood Ninja movie. I actually wrote an extensive piece on the Blood Ninja saga, but that week my father told me that he reads the blog and gets the RSS feed, and then I uh, I got rid of it because I wouldn't <laughs> want my dad to read what I thought about the Blood Ninja saga. <laughs> Does he listen so, to the podcast or say hi to Mr. Fenzel? Uh, you can say hi to him. I don't know if he listens to the podcast, but uh, he's a good dude. Yeah, he called me a little bit a while ago. I need to call him back. Okay. My dad. <laughs> so, Stokes, are you faking it or are you, are you for real? Um, yeah, I'm for real. This, oh. is the, this is the genuine article. Sorry, Miss Jackson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, or you're just that good, right? That, I guess, you know, fine. people will have to wonder when, when this podcast is studied in, in seminars, you know, they'll, they'll have to deconstruct that little utterance I said claiming to be for real. Is that the greatest fake of all? And the answer, of course, is no. No, I'm for real. <laughs> I'd love to deconstruct that as well, too, right? 
Right, 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 of course. And, and to top it off, I'm actually an elaborate prank being played by Howie Mandel on all of you. And he set up, <laughs> oh. set up about 12 years ago, prior to the whole deal or no deal thing. He cut my funding a while back, but I've kept on going just because I like to stay on mission. Copy that. <laughs> all right. Okay, so <laughs> overthinking it, listeners, we have a great show for you lined up. Coming up much later in the podcast, um, we will be doing our Much later. Now. It'll be like an hour from now. No, Two not hours from now. Three hours. There'll be like Ben Hur. You have an intermission. You go get some unspecified temporal passage of time. What other kind of passage of time could there be? Um, We will have our Oscar predictions. I know you're very excited to hear that because you know that uh, we essentially have the power to see into the future and let you know what the Oscar winners are in advance. Mm -hmm. So I know that you're all excited for that, but until we get there, we have some very important things to overthink. Uh, First among which is the subject of monster ballads, which was this week's think tank post in which uh, Mr. Fenzel, Belinky, Stokes, and I all uh, put forward our suggestions for the most monstrous monster ballad. And as you can imagine, you know, the world of monster ballads is a vast one. Mm. I'm only suggesting four <laughs> of them. I guess five with the, with the option of November Rain in the, uh, in, in the poll at the bottom. Uh, it's really only scratching the surface. No, Can I say just quickly how pissed I am that I'm not going to name any names, but there's somebody on our side who was supposed to write the November Rain piece, and he didn't write it. He and I was going to write it. that piece, but I, the last time I tried to write something for Think Tank, I had to pick one because someone else wanted the same thing I wanted. And this time I was like, oh, I'll just write the Bon Jovi piece, and I would have written the November Rain piece. But now, no. Now we don't get to read about November Rain. And you know who you are out there. You should write the November Rain post and put it up there because that, that song needs to be appreciated. Or, you know, I think really over, – over, uh, November Rain deserves its own post by itself. It's it's, an, it's a category unto itself. Now, let's, let's what I wanted to talk about with with the overthinking panel here is the definition itself of a monster ballad versus a power ballad. Because um, the term monster ballad was definitely coined by the uh, the the compilation CD that came out a few years ago. More than a few years ago. More than a few years ago. With a series of what were then, until then, known simply as power ballads, which we've now kind of, you know, uh, appropriated that term into the common parlance. Monster ballads, that is. So much as one Xeroxes something and you say you're making a photocopy, regardless of the type of machine, or as you're Googling something, no matter what search engine you're using, we refer Mm. to monster ballads, which, you know, may be a trademark term. Owned by whatever crappy you know music compilation company that put together monster ballads, we now use that as a generic term for a monster ballad. Agree or disagree? Well, I, I disagree. I think it's a little bit more. Uh subtle than that, and I, I've elaborated upon this in behind-closed-doors secret conversations that you'll get if you buy the DVD that we released in like 20 years of all of our back, background stuff. Um, I think that you got power ballads, right? Okay. And power ballads are guitar-driven, um, largely corporate rock ballads uh, pioneered by Ario Speedwagon um, in the in the High Infidelity album, right? And you've got Sticks in there as well as an early pioneer in the late 70s coming through Chicago. And the, the idea that they're driven by electric guitars and synthesizers, right? And then the monster ballad doesn't refer just to power ballads. It refers specifically to ballads that are made by hair metal groups because that was what Monsters of Rock was the album. Uh, that started the the whole like compilation of monster songs. Um, 
Did we? Am I still here? Am I still online? You're still here. Yeah, we just lost Stokes. But we're going to oh, don't leave a man behind. But yeah, so Monsters of Rock was a festival in England that was held by the Castle Donington Racetrack from 1980 to 1996. But anyway, it was focused on hair metal. Not on most of the power ballads. When you think of as power ballads, are not really done by hair metal groups. Uh, most of them are done more by mainstream corporate rock groups like Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, uh, Billings, Montana, uh, the capital of Saskatchewan, which is I think Alberta cities. No, 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 no. But um, so you got monster ballads that is defined in that sense. But I think in our own private discussions, which we've been having on the subject for several years, um, Blinky in particular, but some of us have also discussed how there's a larger category of overblown ballads that use contemporary principles of orchestration, um, using a lot of synthesizers, using a lot of like uh, rich orchestration and other sort of qualities that you can lump together as a genre, even if they aren't associated with rock bands more generally or hair metal bands specifically. So I guess the, the thing would be, by all three definitions – Every Rose Has Its Thorn is a monster ballad. By two of these definitions, um, uh, I Can't Fight This Feeling is a monster ballad. And by one of these definitions, I Will Always Love You is a monster ballad. Okay, so then how do you classify the Kiss ballad, Beth? I would classify it as awesome, well, especially clearly. since I, I unconditionally support everything Kiss does, and I don't really know that song. <laughs> so, well, the thing with the thing about the thing about Beth, is never I say would you say that it's a power ballad because it is a ballad and is powerful and is sung by a powerful band, mm. but it's not a monster ballad um, because it's lacking a soaring guitar solo, for example, or pounding drums with a about a four second reverb on the snare drum. In fact, there's mm. no snare drum because Peter Chris, the drummer of Kiss steps out from the drum set and sings this ballad. That's why there's no... So, Power Ballad, Monster Ballad? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that sounds pretty good. Um, sorry, my roommate just walked in. Uh, yeah, so what you were talking about, I support unconditionally, because if it has to do with Kiss, then it's awesome. Rock on. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, so wait, there's, there's no drum part to the song at all? There's no drum part at all. No, I know the that... song you're talking about. It's like very quiet and very soulful, right? Yeah, lots of strings. Yeah. Because that, to me, seems like it might be kind of a monster ballady thing, you know? Well, hold on a second. Let's, let's re- rewind here for a sec. What do we consider to be the quint- – let's think about our most monstrous monster ballad selections, respectively. Right. Um, mine aside, because that was more just for comedic effect. Um, the, really? The, my selection being uh, – <laughs> I don't know. I think it's coming in second in the poll. <laughs> <laughs> Behind what? What's number one right now? Oh, November Rain. <laughs> oh, the one that no one wrote about because somebody who I'm <laughs> right. not going to name decided they were going to goof off and not write the post. My, so my selection being... There's the a recession on, people. George. Let's get moving. <laughs> Sorry. The, the ballad about St. George and the Dragon, which is a ballad about a monster. <laughs> not, not, definitely not a monster ballad by the Cinderella or November Rain definition of a soaring, you know, modern work of pop music. I would categorize that as a monster mash, in fact. <laughs> a graveyard smash. <laughs> they did the mash. They did the monster mash. But no, but in all seriousness, no, what we, well, the, the other three selections for most monstrous monster ballad were, um, you know, had those things I talked about before, right? The snare drum with a four second reverb at a slow beat, the soaring guitar solo, and strings. Mm-hmm. 
So, does, so does, does it have to have those things to be a monster ballot? I mean, definitely not. Uh, first of all, that's just way too specific. I mean, I think you'd have to step back and look at something more general. I mean, there are no strings in uh, what, like, um, gosh, well, like, like, uh, are there any strings in, in that cylinder, Cinderella song you were talking about? Um, don't know what you got till it's gone. Yeah, there's there's some pretty heavy duty synth strings. The one I wonder about oh, is synth uh, he- strings. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, he- how about Heaven Isn't Too Far Away by Warrant? Does that have strings in it? I don't think I, so. That's, that's definitely a monster ballad, though. Definitely a monster yeah. ballad, yeah. So that, like, that would be a test case, you know? Like, I don't know art, but I know what I like. Or No, you're yeah. more working in backwards. No, I mean, I, I, what I'm saying, Mark, is that I think we could probably find some pretty good exceptions to the rule if we were to look hard enough. Um, but I think that what you're saying is important. You're characterizing it that there are certain elements like specific musical elements where you could make even a checklist and say does it have this does it have this does it have this and i think you might be in a situation where if it has three of the four it probably still qualifies or and um the question is is it that or is it there's something is there an aesthetic that's informing these choices is there a reason why you would pick strings to put in your monster ballad that you can then backfill and figure out why it was a monster ballad in the first place okay i'll, I'll take that then so the reason why you put strings in it is uh, for a couple of reasons. One, to give it this kind of epic orchestral quality, and two, to mm-hmm. signify sensitivity. Sensitivity. So epic, large-scale, grandiose, you know, over-the-top bombastic mm. I have to say, I've known a lot of musicians over the years, and the violinists have rarely been the most sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> you all laugh because you know I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> Not to diss violinists. I think they're wonderful people, but they tend to be very focused and very industrious. <laughs> <laughs> and like not particularly emotional, <laughs> which which makes their usage as a sensitive instrument that yeah. much more uh, something amazing. I suppose the violists who like feel every hurt deep in their soul, but don't show it on their face. I don't know. I think time. the violists that I've known have been like extremely like chill and laid back people because you know they're the viola yeah. players. It's true. I'm gonna pay attention to the viola players. If you wanted to be uh, really out there in front, you wouldn't be playing the viola. True. You'd true, be playing true. the violin or the electric guitar. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Or, or or the electric guitar with the violin. Yeah, like you would be taking a violin and strumming it across the top of your electric guitar, like banging your Stradivarius against Stratocaster, just like Michael making Tom. that. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, he used a bow, right? Or did he use an actual? No, bow? he actually uh, used the violin. You described exactly <laughs> what Michael Tuffman was doing in his in his trademark solo. Was that awesome. intentional or unintentional? Nigel Tufnell, I think that that. Unlike Joaquin Phoenix, I think he was joking. (laughs) I think Nigel Tufnell was joking. I think Joaquin Phoenix was on heroin. (laughs) But that's just what Mr. Mandela tells me to tell you to get you guys to laugh. Copy that. I I went all the way back to the beginning there. Okay. Let me ask one last question on on Monster Ballads. uh, All right. Ask a question on Monster Ballads. Ow. Wow. I don't know how how I can follow up that. So is the, monster ballad, is the Monster Ballad a dying art? Is the Monster Ballad a who, dying who, art? If we consider that the, the, kind of the heyday of the Monster Ballad was the 80s, mm. who was carrying the Monster Ballad banner into this new century? Well, Andrew W.K., for one. If you listen to The Wolf, right? Um, or, uh, I mean, you've got some of that. You've got, you've got like, uh, self-aware Monster Ballads now, which I'm not sure that the other ones weren't. Well, like, stuff by The Darkness... Right. And like um, a lot of the other sort of like um, like pop punk groups 
that are making music. A lot of small time groups that are very um, self-referential and like very aware of their genre classifications and influences do it. Um, no, I don't think the Monster Ballad is dead at all. I think it's probably the strongest it's ever been, um, except like at Giant Stadium during a Bon Jovi concert in 1987, which would be like <laughs> the nexus to which like if you are a time traveler and your time machine were to just put in like Monster Ballad, it would like pull you there. You'd be like, whoa, this force is so strong. What is? Oh, I see. I understand. So, one of the things that came up during the uh, email conversation that sparked this whole thing was trapped in the closet. Is that a Monster Ballad? <laughs> Yeah, this is something that I brought up, and I think it's a very interesting thing to think about. Because look, some of these uh, these things we talked about, right? Strings, yeah, it's got strings. Oh, yeah. uh, sort of slow, deliberate pace, it's got that. High, intense vocals, yes. There's no guitar solo, and there's no modulation, but there is at one point a full choir, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it also, it has this uh, this crucial element that I wrote about in my post, that it has a a seriousness of purpose about it. Um, you know what also has these things? An actual orchestra. <laughs> like an actual choir, like a handle. Like freaking handle has all this. You need to figure out what is it about a mon- – like, we're getting so far into separating monster ballads from rock and roll and from pop music that we're forgetting that there's also a difference between them and like classical music. Mm-hmm. So well, and- the barrier is more strong. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I mean this is uh, – we could talk about that too. But uh, the thing is that – when we say is trapped in the closet a monster ballad, like we all laugh, right? And the answer is obviously no. Yes. Yeah. And and the question is why, right? Right. Well, one is that it's not a song. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's a little more music but that's video. An easy one. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's basically what an hour long or longer than an hour, but like a two or three hour recitative, right? Pretty much. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, it's a well, it's a minimalist opera. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but, no, but like, but it is. was at one point it was a song. Trapped in the closet, just part one, right? Oh, okay. Could okay. that have been a monster ballad? Um, and I think that. Maybe part of the reason why the answer is no is that the monster ballad, much, much more than many other genres, is kind of keyed to who is singing it. And who is singing it needs to be, among other things, a white man. Yeah, that's what I, I thought. Really? You, that. you don't think that an African American can sing a monster ballad? Well, I tried to think of, a, of an example where this was, uh, you know, could I think of one, right? And I was like, all right, well, let's think of a pop song that has, you know, all of these strings, all of these features, has a chorus coming in the background, uh, has like a big modulation, um, has kind of a heavy backbeat, and then has a black guy singing. And, you know, one of the things that I thought of was like, all right, so like Barry White. Does he sing monster ballads? Well, like, clearly no, right? No. So is the solution that is the answer here that black people make good music and that that's why it doesn't qualify as a monster ballad? Not necessarily, because some of the monster ballads that we brought up are great songs. Yeah, that's you know? true. Um, and it's and it's not like there's all kinds of music are like this. Like black people can make heavy metal. You know, I can think of a couple of uh, of black heavy metal bands. Black people can make punk rock, which is often considered like a white genre. You know, Bad Brains, they do awesome punk rock. Um, but the Monster Ballad seems to be more tightly coded to like to a particular thing. And I was also trying to think of women that do Monster Ballads. The only song that I can think of that kind of works is Eternal Flame. And even there, I'm not quite as comfortable calling that a Monster Ballad as I am calling like, you know, Heaven Isn't Too Far Away a Monster Ballad. Got one for so- you. A female Monster Ballad. What about Love by Heart? 
Now, see, I right. think is I Here's think I can see what Jordan is talking about because I definitely see how it fits, but I also see how like it becomes the definition could be more about the troubadour than the the, the troubadation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That like maybe the, <laughs> awesome you, word by the way. That's <laughs> troubadation. That's a, that's a keeper. <laughs> Well, yeah, because I think that part of what makes a monster ballad monstrous is that it is like a perversion of nature, right? And Mm -hmm. these are like people who are not supposed to be singing this sort of song because of a preconceived notion as to who they are and what they ought to be, Mm -hmm. right? And somebody for whom it is totally acceptable to sing a like wildly like devotional, sensitive guitar, not even guitar driven, but just like, you know – amplified profession of, of sentimentality if you there's already a place for you in the market doing that then like it's not monstrous when you do it it's normal right yeah. but to have like somebody who's like ah, i'm a biker and i'm crazy and like i i have no feelings and i don't know and now i'm singing with the london philharmonic all right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, that- then it, then it becomes a transgression and it needs this yeah. new category so we shouldn't be asking who the best what the best monster ballad is but in fact who is the greatest monster because yes. monster ballad, think about that too. Monster, the word, the word that defines it is a noun, not really an adjective. It's not monstrous ballad. It's monster ballad. So no. maybe monster ballad doesn't mean a ballad with the quality of being like a monster so much as a ballad that is like being sung by a monster, such as the lead singer of Winger, uh, who is <laughs> – <laughs> And we're going to get a little information on because I feel bad. I should have more information on the lead singer of Winger on a, on a file on my desktop for easy access at any given time. But, but sadly, uh, the, the – uh, uh, was it Kip Winger? Oh, well, of course. Wow. <laughs> the band is ep- eponymous? Yeah. I think, well, I think so. Or is it like the, they just all named themselves after the band? No, no. Born Charles Frederick Kip Winger. Wow. <laughs> Two parents who were jazz musicians? What? So Wikipedia is flying. Give me Huey Lewis, man. <laughs> At 16, he began studying classical music after being exposed to the likes of Debussy, Ravel, and Stravinsky in ballet class. At 17, he'll give you love it like you never seen. <laughs> And then at 18, he went on to work with the Alan Parsons Project. <laughs> you know, you, uh, you said that about ballet class, but the, uh, the, the last line on the bio of Kip Winger on Wikipedia is that he's recently completed a 20-minute symphonic piece, Ghosts, for strings, piano, and harp for a ballet commission. Man. No, I was reading from the biography, man. He's totally done ballet. Oh shit! You're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually is like a big fan, apparently, of like what is that surrealistic orchestral composition? Um, uh, impressionist is what people tend to say. Uh, Debussy and Ravel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I, I really wish that uh, that all of all of Winger's uh, work were in whole tone scales. That would be pretty amazing. <laughs> it can be, Fenzel, if you go and edit the Wikipedia page now. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it can be if I rearrange 17 so that it's a whole time. <laughs> that too. What would that even sound like? That's crazy. <laughs> that too. But, <laughs> by the way, Overthinkers, a whole tone song is there are only two whole tone scales. And it's every step in the scale is a, is a full step as opposed to a half step like you'd have in a chromatic scale. Um, and so it's like half the white keys and half the black keys and you switch them around. Jordan could probably explain it better than me, but probably not without saying copy that at the end or something like that. <laughs> okay, so for next Overthinking of podcast, uh, we will, have, we will uh, commission and perform our whole tone. Monster Ballad. Sounds like that a is a that is a check your butt can't cash, Mark Lee. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't you <laughs> copy that. Copy that. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't, there's three guys in there. I don't can take them. It's like, no, you have to go around. No, we have to find a way. Okay. Copy Beep. that. Okay. Beep. Let's, Beep. let's move on. I think we've overthought Monster Ballads to the death. Um, although, death please, metal. Please, please do death metal. Please do continue that in the comments because um, we love those comments. Uh, hey, can we change the spelling of overthinking it so it has a Y in it? Like overthinking um- it. And an umlaut. And an umlaut. Yeah. That'd be awesome. We should, <laughs> you know, we, should have, we should have a metal week. We've done two theme weeks on 80s movies. I think yeah. it's time to diversify a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of diversifying, uh, much like everyone is trying to diversify their portfolio in these uh, hard economic times, this is a real stretch of a segue, i got to say. Yeah, don't um, lose heart halfway through or else it's totally ruined. Keep it going. Ilsa Fisher, unfortunately, really wasn't diversifying her portfolio or, for that matter, exercising any sort of good financial practices uh, okay, okay. in the movie Confessions of a Shopaholic. Oh, we're there. This weekend. That was a <laughs> segue. was like that rickety rope bridge in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I was worried it was going to snap on you there, but you made it. Oh, uh, I, I, think, I think it did snap there in the middle, and that was the part where the, you know, the rope bridge is up against the cliff and Indiana Jones is you know, hanging on vertically and climbing right. like, way back up. Well, really, any transition from a monster ballad, rather than having some kind of elaborate preparation for the chord change, you should just, like, have the one chord and then have the other one. <laughs> it, can be a, it can be a half-step modulation up, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. You just go from one to the other. Yes. Okay, so, Confessions of a Shopaholic. Um, if it needs to be described, if you haven't heard about it, just very quickly, it is the movie based on a novel about, well, a shopaholic who has to deal with her shopping habit and how to sustain that. Um, but what a lot of people are saying is that this is the quite possibly the most inappropriate movie you could make about the worst depression economic situation the United States has had since the Great Depression. Thoughts from the panel? Um, you could have made a movie called Subprime Awesome about people who take foreclosed homes and have great parties in them. That would be less sensitive, I think. <laughs> Yeah, about uh, prime about... time. Be called so prime time, starring B two K, and they would have a bunch of crazy house parties and like foreclosed we... apartment buildings and downtrodden areas. Stop. We are sitting on a gold mine. Subprime time. <laughs> we got to yeah. stop this podcast and start writing that screenplay immediately and start shopping it around. Mm. Let me uh, expand, by the way, people who are unfamiliar with the uh, Shopaholic franchise. The deal is that she gets a job writing a finance column, kind oh, of accidentally. Um, and she turns out to just be a natural at giving financial advice. You know, like she gives the best financial advice that anyone's ever received, but she can't keep her own finances in order. Mm. So it's a little bit more interesting than that, um, than, than just that she is, you know, incapable of running her life. I gotcha. I gotcha. And who is she played by? Ilsa Fisher from Ilsa Fisher. Uh, Wedding Who's that? Is that like the chick from Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? Word the words to be true. It's the chick from the redheaded chick from Wedding Crashers. Okay, oh, okay. nympho young one who's all over Vince Vaughn. I still need to see that movie. I hear that that's a good movie because they get into weddings and it teaches you right. It teaches you how to get into inside of ballrooms and like gazebos that are locked from the outside, and you have to like. It's like an instructional video, right? Hey, you know her name. Her name isn't Ilsa. It's Isla. 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 Weird. Man, I, 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 had, I had never uh, – uh, I'd always read that Ilsa. Um, there you go. Isla is pretentious for island. <laughs> oh, and it's apparently pronounced uh, Iway 
or, or Iowa. Are you, Man, this is getting, are you reading that from Wikipedia? Because if you are, I'm convinced that's being made up. It's possible, yeah. Hey, let me see what kind of crazy things I can make Jordan say by editing Isla Fisher's Wikipedia page. So what I was wondering is that um, how about a movie based on sound financial practices instead of uh, unwise ones? You mean like – Are there any of those being made? Or have been made. Well, yeah, actually, there was one that was released very recently, um, uh, Friday the 13th. It shows people <laughs> being murdered while they are teenagers. This, at this point, this is the best financial decision that anyone could possibly make. <laughs> well, making decisions. Jason is making – Jason is hacking them apart and making the decisions. Well, he's your advisor. <laughs> he's telling you to oh, cash yeah. out. Well, yeah. You know it's their fault. It's always the it teenagers' fault at these fault. movies. They shouldn't have gone out in the woods. <laughs> I'm no, glad, the guy I'm who made another one. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Do any of you guys have plans to see that? I, I wrote about the preview that we saw in Comic Con. It was kind of thoroughly disgusted by it. Um, and and uh, Jordan, I think you're you're something of a horror film aficionado. Yeah, I'm 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 a horror fan. I, I like a lot of horror movies. The thing is that, um, well, first of all, with horror as with everything, ninety percent of what's produced is terrible, right? Right. So I do like horror movies. I'll even watch the absurdly violent ones, but I tend to watch the older ones just because the ones that people are still talking about, you know, ten fifteen years after the fact, are the ones that are good, and ninety percent of them have just fallen away. Right. One thing that's interesting about the Friday the 13th uh, franchise is that the first Friday the 13th movie, which is you know, very famous still talked about after all this time is very, very bad Okay, like, I mean, I, I I fell asleep watching it, literally it's terrible um, so I don't really have any desire to see, you know, a lesser remake of that. So why did the franchise catch on? I really don't know I mean, timing, for one thing mm-hmm. um it provided, you know, naked breasts and slaughtered people. and But so did all know. the other ones, right? Oh, yeah, but it was one of the first, I suppose. Oh. Um, and But no, I, like, I don't really have a good explanation for why it caught on. Halloween, I can understand them making sequels to Halloween. Like, if you, can, if you can stand a little bloodshed, the original Halloween is a brilliantly crafted movie. But Friday the 13th is derivative and, like, kind of terrible. It's got Friday, Kevin Bacon in it. <laughs> Friday the 13th made $39.7 million in the box office and went on to become one of the most profitable slasher films in cinema history. It was made for $550,000. Um, it was the first movie of its kind to secure distribution in the U.S. by a major studio. Film box office success led to a long series of sequels. It, this was, thing was made with, like, you know, not Blair Witch money, but, like, close to Blair Witch money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was inspired by John Carpenter's Halloween. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in a sense, like, I mean, I think that when people talk about the history of the genre, they say that Halloween was like the first kind of proof of concept. It's kind of right. the Xerox park to, uh, yeah. to Apple's yeah. Macintosh. Um, Friday the 13th was the first one that proved that it could be wildly, wildly successful. Interesting. And then in a few years, short years, Jason went to space. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. Get that one. Where he met the leprechaun. Yes. And then they went to the hood. <laughs> hey, speaking of movies that went into space, uh, boy, some Oscars are coming up. How's that for a segue? Anyone? I don't think you nailed that one, man. <laughs> no, not so much. Yeah, okay. Speaking of movies that gated to space, uh, Disney Pixar's hit Wally is nominated for Best Animated Short. No, Long Movie. Long Movie, because it's long at the Oscars. Yeah. And that would be sort of okay. That's like Carrie Strug okay, where you break your leg, but you make it through. <laughs> that, that's kind of the segue that I was going for. But I just, I was going to say, I was just phoning it in. 
Um, yeah, you're okay. Walter no, Bashir. Oh, wait, wait. How about this? How about this? How about uh, speaking of inappropriate spectacles in these spectacles in these trying economic times? The opera, right. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> okay, so this is what you've all been waiting for, Overthinking It podcast listeners. Thanks for making it this far, or rather, thank you for um, scrolling your mouse across the horizontal bar line, which is going to lie to you. Really appreciate your dedication, whether it was listening, sitting and listening on the subway for 30 minutes, or scrolling your mouse, to make it to this part of the podcast, where we're going to use our powers to tell the future, um, to provide our... Uh, our Oscar predictions. Now, interestingly enough, although all of us had the power to tell the future, I think we're all seeing the future of alternate timelines produced by time travelers coming back uh, <laughs> in time and causing rifts in the space-time continuum. So, although in this timeline, it may seem that some of us may be quote-unquote right or quote-unquote wrong, <laughs> it's just because we don't see the alternate timelines that we have the power to see the future in. Yeah. <laughs> is everybody clear on that? All, all over thinking listeners? Okay. Got it. Definitely true. Right. So that is all true. <clears throat> In Warp Speed, we're going to move through the kind of the lesser to more technical nom- nominations. And at the end, we'll make it all the way up to the major ones and finishing with Best Picture. Um, before we start, I will um, preface and say that um, my power to see the future is based on on alphabetical order. In other words, the future that I see is dictated by alphabetical order. Yeah. So, what yeah, the time traveler, like... the time traveler in your case seems to have been the imp from Superman who needs to have his name said backwards. Mr. Mixley Flakes or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, wait, uh, Jordan, how do you say his name backwards? Uh, is there a little loop? Oh, where? What the hell happened to Jordan? Oh my God! No. <laughs> yeah, never mind. Okay. So that's what I'm going to do, is my predictions will all be based on the first letter of the alphabet, partly because that's how my, uh, my uh, vision of the future works, but also as a way to demonstrate the kind of crappy slate of movies that we have. That doesn't really matter what I'm choosing. I'm just going by alphabetical order. And who knows? Maybe I will come out on top. We're going to score these predictions, and we're going to come back to you next week and show how we did. So without any further ado, let's start the predictions. First up, right. best visual effects. The nominees are The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Dark Knight, and Iron Man. I'll go first, and first in alphabetical order is Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh, made Brad Pitt look really old, so it's cool. It's going to win. Benzel. Benjamin Button. Yeah, honestly, I got to say, uh, that old Brad Pitt was pretty freaky. I'm going to say Benjamin Button. Now, did you two actually see this movie? Yes. No, I'm just... <laughs> I just saw oh, the trailer. Crap movie. <laughs> Three and a half hours that I wish I had back. Wow. Bullshit okay. movie. There aren't even any buttons in it. Spring alert. No, hey, come on. There is no curiosity. There is no case. And there are no buttons. There's this guy named Benjamin, and all he kind of does is hang out. Way it's kind of sp- stupid. Way to spoil it. I was going there, and I was all going to be excited to see the buttons. And now I'm going to know there aren't any buttons. It would be funny if there were a big button at the end. If there was a big button in the whole movie that he could push, and he chose not to push it until the very end. (laughs) It's odd that uh, Coraline, which just came out and is apparently a good movie, is very button-centric. See, that's the mistake that they made, is that they didn't follow the the button trend. They got the first inkling of it, but they didn't follow through. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to move through these other ones a lot faster, Mark. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Best sound mixing. Wanted! Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Dark Knight, Slumdog Millionaire, Wally, and Wanted. Benzel. Wanted! Stokes. I'm going to say Wally. Okay, and uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Steve's for Curious. 
<laughs> we'll see who comes out at the end, at top of the end. Uh, best sound editing. Wanted! <laughs> we know where Pencil stands on this. Okay, Curve we don't the bullet! Need, Curve the we, bullet. Don't, we, don't even, we don't even need to list the nominees. Pencil says Wanted. Mark, what do you say? The Dark Knight, number one on the list. All right, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Wally again. Okay, well, All right. Stokes is a Wally kind of guy. Uh, best original song, very controversial. Only three nominees this year. Um, Down to Earth from Wally, Jaiho from Slumdog Millionaire, and Osaya. Down to Earth it is Wally. I'm jumping on the Wally uh, bandwagon there. Benzel? Osaya by A.R. Rahman and M.I.A. So that she can be in a pregnant windsock when she's on stage. <laughs> Copy that. Stokes. Copy that. I'm going to slow, I'm gonna slow it down a little bit here to say that, uh, that Jai Ho is, like, honestly a pretty great song. Um, these are all plausible choices, but Jai Ho is the one that people can actually sing if you, like, go up to them on the street. So I'm going to say that's a good one. Okay. Cool. Best original score. Uh, again, first in alphabetical order is Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I'm really – Curious Case of Benjamin Button better sweep because it is the first in alphabetical order in a lot of these things. Is Benjamin. it possible that this is Milk. how the nominations were? Milk. Milk. <laughs> Milk. All right. I just want to say, is it possible that this is how the nominations were determined? Because Curious Case of Benjamin Button got nominated for freaking everything, and it sucked. <laughs> Pretty much. All right. I'm going to say best score, Slumdog Millionaire A.R. Rahman. He deserves to win. Okay, and Fenzel, you're saying to my milk still? Milk! I, can't, I'm I, saw, I actually saw that, and I barely remember any of the music. It was pretty sparse in terms of orchestration. Anyway. I haven't seen it at all, so I don't know what it's like. <laughs> best makeup. I'm just getting on that one. Yeah. I'm using my future powers. My future powers tell me that it's Hellboy 2, the Golden Army, which should, should sweep this year and get all the Oscars. That's not <laughs> in an alternate timeline, it does. In an alternate timeline, Ron Perlman is the equivalent of Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm just throwing that out there. I want to live in that timeline. By which I mean he played a homeless man on Growing Pains. This is Stokes. Your prediction for best makeup. For best makeup? Uh, Hellboy, definitely. Okay. Um, not for Heath Ledger's uh, makeup smear? Yeah, I, I saw Hellboy before reading the rest of the nominations, but I'm not going to go back on my word. Fair enough. Best li- okay, best live action short. For this, I'm actually going to have to re- read out the nominees because I doubt anyone's heard of any of them. On the Line, Menon on the Asphalt, New Boy, The Pig, and Toyland. Um, first in alphabetical order here is uh, Menon on the Asphalt. So that's my choice. Mr. Frenzel. I really, you know, when you're talking about sublimity and you're really talking about things that access our capacity to understand both both pain and loss and, and the beauty that attends the things that we lose, you realize what it's like to, to have to name a winner without seeing any of the movies. And for me, it really comes down to, to The Pig, which was uh, has the word Greasin next to it uh, in this nomination list, which should be significant in some way, but I have no idea why. Um, Greasin, maybe the person who made it, or maybe it's the name. Oh, it's the name of the movie in the language of the country it came from so it's the pig i think or maybe it's where it's from i don't know but it has bacon in it so i'm going to vote for it good choice i mean i could tell the future and the pig is definitely going to win you put yeah. a lot of money on it in vegas i'm going to go for men on on the asphalt again i haven't seen any of these men on the old uh, sports illustrated swimsuit model was pretty hot back in the day i always thought she was a little pretentious though good choice hot back in the day but pretentious exactly oscar worthy Sort of like Christy Turlington. Yeah. Best film editing. Again, I hope Curious Case of Benjamin Button sweeps because it's first again. Fenzel. Frost Nixon. So, I'm going to go Dark, dark Knight. Okay, someone's really working uh, that, worked the Avid or the Final Cut machine real hard to earn that one. 
Best documentary <laughs> short, Conscience of Nahim N, The Final Inch, Smile Pinky, and The Witness from the Balcony of Room 306. First in alphabetical order is Conscience of Nahim N, which I can't pronounce, so it's making me sound like an idiot. Fenzel, what's your choice? I'm going to go for Conscious of Nam in because it's the only one that has the guy who made it next to it on the Wikipedia page. Therefore, it must be more important than the other ones. <laughs> That's that, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stokes? Um, I'm going to go with Smile Pinky. I don't know. <laughs> Good choice. Best documentary feature, Narakun, The Betrayal. Encounters at the End of the World, The Garden, Man on Wire, and Trouble the Water. First in alphabetical order for me is Encounters at the End of the World. That sounds exciting, too. I have no idea what it's about. But it sounds exciting. I'm, I'm going to second you on that one. Werner Herzog is involved. That's always a solid bet. How do you know that? I've heard of the movie. Would you like me to explain uh, it a bit? dropping <laughs> Werner Herzog's name just, just to score geek points or something. I'm going to go no, for it, Man on Wire. Man on Wire was on NPR, and therefore all the people who are going to vote for it in the Academy are going to vote for it. I like the way you think. <laughs> Best costume design, Australia, Curry's Case, Benjamin Button, The Duchess, Milk, Revolutionary Road. Oh, look at that. Australia is beating out Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Oh, <laughs> oh it upset. <laughs> Upsets. Yeah, you got to diversify your portfolio, Mark, you know? <laughs> you got to diversify your bonds, G. <laughs> I'm going to say The Duchess. Hoop skirts are always nice. Yeah, they love that bullshit. I'm saying The Duchess. All right. Okay, best cinematography, Changeling, Benjamin Button, Dark Knight. The Reader and Slumdog Millionaire. Again, Changeling is saving my ass and give me a movie that's not Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So that's my pick. Uh, I'm going to go with Slumdog Millionaire, which I have not seen. Interesting. I'm going to go with... Sorry, you go. (laughs) I'm going to say The Dark Knight. I think the camera work was really interesting there. Agreed. Although Changeling was pretty awesome still because it's first in alphabetical order. Best (laughs) Changeling, Benjamin Button, Dark Knight, Duchess, Revolutionary Road. Benzel. I'm going to say Revolutionary Road is going to pull off the upset by managing to do Titanic without a boat, which is a hard thing to do for any art director. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, I will pick the one film that I have seen in this category, The Dark Knight. Good. And, uh, you know, in my own future... Weakness, Stokes. That's your limitation. That's why you will fail. <laughs> foolish affection for these movies you've seen will be your undoing. <laughs> Again, so in my alternate future, uh, Changeling and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button are big Oscar winners. Um, mm. Were I to live in that, in that alternate future. Best animated short, La Maison en Petit Cube, Laboratory Octopody, Presto, and This Way Up. How anyone votes for anything other than Octopody in this category is a mystery to me. That is the clear winner. I agreed. That is, that is consensus for me on that one. The, the contrarian in me and the alphabetician in me is going to have to go with on petit cube. It's the, the, what is that? The person who makes little cubes? What does maison mean? Uh, the house uh, of little cubes? The house of oh. little cubes? Made of little cubes? I don't know. Fair enough. My uh, four years of high school French are failing me now, miserably. Uh, making me sound Show like an idiot. Here. C'est la boîte. Ce n'est pas le crayon. C'est la manchoire. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the pencil. That's handkerchief. Okay, we have passed, we have passed the, uh, the marker on the Wikipedia page, which uh, clearly delineates minor awards from major <laughs> awards. <laughs> Overthinking it, listeners, are you ready for this? do <laughs> 
If you're on the subway, <laughs> make sure you're holding on to something. If you're doing if you're doing your ironing, you better put that iron down because you're just gonna burn your clothes. What more can I say? You've been warned. Let's do it. Best foreign language film, Revanche, The Class, Badir, Meinhof, Complex, Departures, and Waltz with Bashir. I'm going to say Waltz with Bashir because I thought he was really sensitive and he knew a lot. And I was always interested in learning more about uh, his sort of super intelligence and that group of super intelligent people that he worked with to try to figure out how to outwit the Dominion and win the war. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> What? What? People say that foreign language cinema gets no respect in America. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know. I think that playing the percentages of what the Academy is going to want to reward, the class has a bunch of telegenic teenagers in it, and I'm going to go with the class. Clavon, another French film. Uh, my pick, first in alphabetical order, is the Badir Meinhof complex, and I have no idea what it's about. That's Moving a on. controversial pick. Controversial pick that has a the in front of it, which you chose not to count. I'm so not counting the uh, the. the. That, you know that the future is a bold place. <laughs> it is. <laughs> okay, best animated feature: Bolt, Kung Fu Panda, and Wall E. <laughs> I pity the fool who has to choose Bolt for this one. <laughs> Wall E, clearly. <laughs> My alternate future is better than yours. I'm jealous. <laughs> I will reiterate that my sister got everyone in our family, and our family is big, a copy of Kung Fu Panda for Christmas, (laughs) which was awesome. And when I opened mine after my dad opened his, I was like, this is awesome. And therefore, in order to diversify the choices and also to give credit to my sister, I'm going to say that it's a lock that Kung Fu Panda is totally going to beat Wally and be the best animated feature, which won't happen, but will. Totally. (laughs) That, that, I would just there would be riots <laughs> in the street. I think if Wally didn't win this, yeah. Uh, but, but that's but so you're saying there are going to be riots in the street because Bolt's going to win because it's first in alphabetical order. That yeah. That's uh, and again in my alternate future. Buy canned food, people. Buy canned food because the world <laughs> will be plunged into darkness as Bolt upsets Wally for best animated feature at the Oscars. Man, I always knew that. Oh God. <laughs> okay, best ad- John Travolta. Best adapted screenplay, Benjamin Button, Frost Nixon, The Reader, Slumdog, and Doubt. Tough one. Probably Slumdog Millionaire will actually win this. I wonder if Doubt might deserve it more, but I'm going to say Slumdog Millionaire. Um, I saw Doubt back in the Dizzy when it was in previews on Broadway, and I like it from what I've read. I like it a lot. I love it. But from what I read, it wasn't particularly notable as an adaptation. I'm going to go with mm-hmm. Frost Nixon, which from, from what I hear was more successful translating the, uh, the, the piece from script to screen. Okay, and my alphabetical pick, again, Benjamin Button. That thing's going to just sweep. That's ridiculous. In my own future. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like Ben-Hur, man. This is crazy. Yeah. When, like 50 awards. Yeah. If there was one for chariating, it would win. <laughs> Um, I, I've only seen Slumdog on that list, and wouldn't be surprised if it won. That's my mm-hmm. actual, my other alternate future prediction. Uh, best original screenplay: Wally, Happy Go Lucky, Frozen River, In Bruges, and Milk. Am I saying that right? In Bruges. Anybody give that a shot? In Bruges. In Bruges. Bruges. Yeah. yeah, you have to say it with an Irish accent, not with a yeah. uh, Belgian accent. <laughs> was that, is that what I was saying? Belgian. It's in Belgium. I've actually been informed by my father that I've been to Bruges. Really? I, I talked about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I watched in Bruges with a little-known musical genius named Jordan Stokes, um, and we rented it because we thought it was going to be a silly, funny movie, and it turned out to be much more than that. Um, and so I told yeah. my father about it. He said, you've been there. 
So. Yeah, let me let me say to anyone who's listening, like you probably didn't think that it was like really worth your time to see in Bruges. It totally is. Yeah, that's like a legitimately good, interesting, compelling movie. So is um, is, is that your pick over like Milk and Wally? No, not necessarily, but I just think that uh, it deserves more attention than it got. It's strange, you know. It's it's probably kind of a minor picture, but a very, very interesting minor picture. My pick for best original screenplay is Wally because the only words are Wally and Eva, and I think that would be great if that ran, like ironically. But uh, but it is my pick. <laughs> uh, I'm going to pick Milk largely because I think the Academy is going to want to award the art artisan art artistry of it, but isn't going to find room in the higher awards to do so. And so the screenwriters are going to take it upon themselves to do that. By that logic, I would probably agree with you in that Milk um, is deserving of recognition, but probably not the higher awards. Maybe is, – is what's-his-face Sean Penn nominated for actor? Yeah, yeah, I'm he is. I'm myself. Okay, but my alphabetical pick, of course, is going to have to be Frozen River, Dark Horse. That's a bold, that's a bold pick. That is a bold pick. That movie is totally first in alphabetical order. And not when you can see the <laughs> not when you can see my alternate future. It's not a bold pick. I'm just. I hear there's that. like an uh, actual river that's not liquid, but is in fact in a solid state in that movie. <laughs> or maybe not. I mean, it's just the pick. kind of like maybe that, just the top, like the top there's no buttons so. in that. Like underneath the first foot and a half, it's actually liquid, but the top foot and a half is totally solid. All right, best supporting actress. <laughs> <laughs> We can talk more about the phases of matter, guys. Where are you going? <laughs> so I'm, I'm faced with a tough choice here. I guess I have to go with alphabetical by last name. Um, well, actually... No, it's not a tough one, choice it, at all. It's a very easy choice for you. Yeah. Amy Adams were doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did great. Um, what do you think, Pete? Well, I'm going to go with Marissa Tomei. I love her performance. I don't think she's going to win, I guess. But in the alternate future that I choose to look at with my oracular powers, she's totally the winner. She was very good. I also would be quite pleased to see Penelope Cruz win for uh, for Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which, by the way, whenever I read that title now, I always want to follow it up for some reason with I Drive a Chevrolet Movie Theater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know how I read the title in my head now, right? But uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to vote for her just to keep it interesting, but I would love to see Marissa Tomei win. Mm. Now, I actually, I, Stokes, I actually saw Vicky Cristina Barcelona as well, and that Penelope Cruz's performance is uh, frightening as well. Yeah, as right? yeah, good stuff. Okay, uh, best supporting actor. My first in alphabetical order pick is Josh Brolin in Milk, um, which I actually saw, and he was pretty good. Um, but if I had to choose my non-alphabetical pick, um, I would just do Robert Down. Oh, who am I kidding? <laughs> okay. Forget it. Okay, Heath Ledger, just what, what? Who could it not be? Yeah, Heath Ledger uh, will win, not for the reasons that he deserves to win. I think it's going to be Heath Ledger, and he's going to win, and everyone's going to be really surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say that when Heath Ledger wins, 75% of the Oscar-watching audience will turn it off. Yeah, probably. And when Robert Downey Jr. wins... There will be riots in the streets. streets. (laughs) Can't wait. Okay, best actress... First in alphabetical order is Anne Hathaway for Rachel getting married. Sure. Which is great. Mm-hmm. Next. Um, I'm going to say this is Kate Winslet's year to get it for the All reader because right. reading is fundamental. <laughs> nice. That's what Sting told me in a poster in my elementary school library. <laughs> I'll go with, uh, go with Meryl Streep. don't have a real strong opinion about this one, I'm afraid. Yeah, this is, kind of a, this is a, not a particularly – 
uh, compelling slate here. Gotta say, okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, I've heard that a lot of these performances were great. I just haven't seen most of them. Nor has most of America apparently. Yeah. Okay. I heard that Anne Hathaway was tremendous, actually, and Rachel getting married. But I just I haven't seen it. I hear that's one of the best movies of the year that got very little recognition. Actually, uh, the Onion AV Club creamed themselves all over that movie and their <laughs> things. Yeah. Uh, not as much as I cream myself on a usual podcast, of course, but you know, <laughs> club's a little bit lower octane than we are. You know, we're pretty on the edge. Yeah, we are. <laughs> Moving right along. Best actor. First in alphabetical order is my amazing powers of literacy, Richard Jenkins, the visitor. Mm, good pick. Good pick. I totally would have picked anyone but him. I think that's a good pick. <laughs> <laughs> so, Pencil, who's going to be? I, honestly, I think that it's going to be kind of an upset. I think Frank Langella is going to pull this one out. Um, because I think that the Academy is probably not ready to give this award to Mickey Rourke. Certainly not the people, I mean, because the people who get to vote for this are the people who have won acting awards in the past, right? So, uh, yeah, I think doesn't, might... the, doesn't the whole Academy vote on this? Yeah, but isn't, was membership in the Academy contingent upon being nominated for an Oscar? Or no. no. Oh, no, 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 no. Not no. at all. Okay. Yeah. So the rather was talking about that in our last podcast. Last podcast. Yeah. Rather said that, they must be a dirty liar. Yeah, I'm going to say Frank Langella is going to upset uh, Mickey Rourke, who's, I think, the odds-on favorite in this one. I would I – would, uh, I'm going to go with Mickey Rourke. I'm hoping he wins. Yeah. I hope so too. At this, point, I'm, at this point, I'm beginning to vote my heart rather than my mind. So we'll mm. see my, uh, my success rate trail off. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Best director, um, first in alphabetical order, Daniel Boyle, Slumdog Millionaire, and he probably will win. Yeah. I think I agree. I think Danny Boyle will probably win, even though I haven't seen his movie. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put a third on Danny Boyle for Slumdog Millionaire. So if we have time, I'd like to ask: When you look at a look at a movie, how do you tell that the director did a good job afterwards? You know, like when you and see it a wasn't. Movie. I mean, you, you see a movie. How do you walk out of that and say, "Oh, the director really did a great job there"? You know, how do you know that it wasn't someone else? Because really, all that the director does is tell other people to do their jobs in certain ways. That's what the president does too. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's. I mean, do you believe in auteur theory and all that stuff? Well, I mean, I, I'm questioning auteur theory. I think that when you've when you've seen enough Hitchcock movies, you begin to kind of get what the, the signature Hitchcock style was. Fine. Mm-hmm. And maybe Danny Boyle. At this point, there are certain things you can look at and say, all right, well, that's a Danny Boyle movie. You know what a Danny Boyle movie is going to look like. But um, if you've never seen anything by the director before, then I don't see how you can walk away saying, oh, the director really did something awesome there. Mm-mm. I mean, I think that there's a that if you look at the way that the contingent elements are brought together, you can start cataloging very specifically. Um, well, this was something that the editor did. This is something that was done by the art director. Um, but it's very hard to isolate the director's specific role. Um, I guess they're always going to be disproportionately rewarded for other people's successes and disproportionately punished for other people's failures. Well, I do know that Zack Snyder, you know, really invented slow motion. So. Um, that's how I know that there's a you know the best director. Good, good. Well, you know him because of the abs. The, da- yeah. the director's responsibility is what abs in the movie. <laughs> that too. <laughs> okay, and in, last... in that case, the best director is Ron Howard because Richard Nixon has a six pack in his movie, and it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't I want to take crook. questions. I didn't want to take questions about Watergate. I just wanted to take questions about my workout regimen. <laughs> <laughs> I am cut like Mount Rushmore. <laughs> That's fantastic. I can't add my own Richard Nixon impression on top of that. Um, so, without any further ado, uh, what you've all been waiting for, the overthinking and alternate future predictions for best 
Picture Academy Award. First in alphabetical order, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Going to be big in my alternate future. Fenzel. I'm going to say Frost Dixon. I think that that's going to win. I think that people are still hating Bush enough to vote for it. I think uh, Slumdog Millionaire. I think that people in this particular time would like a happy story. They would also like to pretend that poverty is something that exists only in India and cannot touch us here in America. The poverty also is something that winning a game show can solve. Yeah, yeah, man, it's relevant on all. It's relevant all over the place. Mm-mm. Yes, my non-alternate future alphabetical, alphabetical alternate future prediction as well as going to have to be Slumdog, Slumdog, mostly along those, those lines as well, and that people are looking for something positive. And this is going to be just a feel-good Oscar. And also, you know what? It's a good movie. I, have to, I feel like I have to keep saying this. Slumdog Millionaire is really good. But mm-hmm. I, I agree. It's, it's, re- it's really good. Um, but I was seeing it from a slightly different perspective and looking, seeing it as one of many Asian melodramas. And huh. to, to bring the podcast full circle, to bring up the Asian-ness. Um, and I was thinking about this a lot after after I left the theater. Is that you don't? Maybe there's there's a, a a shortage of this kind of really earnest love story in American cinema. Most of the romantic comedies we have are just that. Well, most of the romantic movies we have are comedies of the goofball, forgetting Sarah Marshall variety. Do you want to watch a romantic tragedy? <laughs> Well, no, but the thing, this isn't a tragedy either. This is a romantic uh, melodrama, right? Uh, melodrama, yes. A romantic Asian melodrama. And that's specifically what I was thinking because um, based on the the small handful of Korean uh, romantic melodramas that I've seen, and my understanding, that's kind of the, 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 the typical form um, mm. for, for movies produced from that part, that part of the world. Maybe irony hasn't quite taken its hold over there yet, and America is seeing... Um, in Asia, it's, uh, it's, it's passed before it lost its innocence and turned to the sin of irony. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, yeah, sure. Whatever, man. But uh, it's just a, <laughs> well, because, um, because Slumdog's uh, identity as an Indian movie is a little bit problematic, right? It's certainly there are uh, various people from India who are involved with the story and the making of the film and everything. But it is a British director um, and a British star actor and in many ways a British movie, right? So it was made by the Empire of India. I fail to see your point. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Ceylon, the Pearl of the Orient. <laughs> so those are our 2009 Academy Award predictions. Was that 2000? Copy that. Copy that. Uh, you know what? I was going to bring it back. 81st Academy Award predictions. They're all right in our different alternate universes, but we'll see which ones align with the current timeline. Timeline which we purportedly inhabit. You. Uh, the listeners and the overthinking and writers. We're going to post the results on the website and we'll check back in a, a week later and see how we did um, probably on next week's podcast. So stay tuned. Uh, we're probably going to live Twitter that as well. So make sure you're following us at twitter.com slash over tweeting it. Uh, some last announcements before we wrap up the show. Don't forget you can contact us at podcast at overthinking it.com or give us a phone call at 20. Eat log zero one. You can also phone in your Oscar predictions from your alternate future, and we'll uh, believe you when you say that you're right in your alternate future. Um, don't forget to give us a five star rating on iTunes for the podcast. Um, we really appreciate that. It helps people, other people, find and enjoy the podcast and see the future. And don't forget to please take the survey. There's a little box above 
um, the podcast section on the homepage. Click that. It helps us find out about you and helps us sell advertising, which will help us all quit our day jobs to make even more podcasts for you. So that's the trade-off. What happens when you get ads on this podcast, you get more of us. So weigh that cost-benefit and take that survey. And don't forget to check <laughs> us out on the web at www.overthinkingit.com. The website that, Site subjects that subjects the, the popular, popular culture, culture to scrutiny probably, probably doesn't deserve. Damn you, Skype, and your lack of real timeness stuff. I totally forgot that we were supposed to do that. <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> it's tricky, you know, honestly, to uh, to get that to sync up right. Hang on a second. Let me stop this.